Hello and welcome to The Devil's Party. I'm Anthony Oliveira, PhD culture critic, dumpster raccoon, and this week, uh, the end of the world kicks off with a bang. Uh, today was apparently the hottest day in human history, so it feels uh, appropriate to be ending the world today. We're on Revelations chapter 5, uh, talking about the lamb who was slain. So last week we zoomed on up to the court of uh, God, the father. Uh, you'll remember his four dudes. Well, one was a dude. One was a weird hawk thing. One was a weird lion thing. <laughs> and uh, one was a weird ox thing. Um, and then the 24 elders who encircled uh, and then the Sea of Glass, the whole deal. Um, so now the action is going to begin, and we're going to meet a new party member. Um, so chapter 5, Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, that would be God, remember his weird emerald rainbow and everything, uh, a scroll written, and on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, your edition may have a different phrase there, um... Every edition I looked in at least made a note about it. This one notes, or written on the inside and sealed on the back. Um, actually quite debated in people's arguments. Uh, is this a scroll that is double-sided? Or is this a scroll that, you, as you would imagine, is written on one side and then the ceiling is on the back? It comes down to actually, like, phrasing and commas here. Um... It's, there's good cases for and against. It, I was really quite convinced that what this is saying was obviously written on the inside and then sealed on the back. What's the point of sealing it if it's legible on the outside, right? Um, but in fact, when you look at Ezekiel, who also has a scroll that he has to eat, we're going to have to eat this scroll in chapter 10, um, Ezekiel is explicit that his scroll is written on both sides, Um and there is kind of neat uh, exegesis you can do to explain why that's interesting. Um, notably, paper in this moment has, like, the horizontal side and then the vertical side. Uh, it's easy to write on the horizontal side, as in the side where the, um, the actual, like, texture of the page is horizontal. Obviously, that is an easier writing surface. So usually when you unfolded your paper, you'd be like, well, obviously I write on this side. And the outside is usually just where you like put the addressee or the contents of the scroll, right? Um, in Ezekiel, it's very clear that it's both sides. And it's meant to preserve some idea of the exuberance of the text, the inexhaustibility of the text, and also the way the text has at all times, a hidden dimension to it, and literally another side to it, right? Um, honestly, though, I am... If it wasn't for the fact that the better texts tell us that it's on both sides, I would be inclined to think, obviously, the way it's meant to be understood is that the seals are on the outside and the text is on the inside. You make of it what you will. Um... Anyway, the idea here is that God has this scroll that he wants to unseal, but there's no one worthy to unseal it. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. This will happen actually three times. A mighty angel will make a proclamation in Revelations. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. 
um, that formula in heaven, on earth, or under the earth is generative in a lot of interesting ways. It probably means under the waters. You'll remember, again, we're dealing with like the cake stand model of cosmology where the, the sea is under the weird floating island of Earth. Um, but of course, one tempting reading of that is that it refers to the dead, right? Uh, the people who are in heaven, that is, that is the heavenly beings, the people who are alive, and the people who have gone into the earth, who are under the earth in like a Sheol-like space, right? Very heavy arguments in both directions about this. Honestly, both pretty generative to me, so I'm not inclined to make a reading one way or the other. Um, who is worthy to open this open the seal and break its seals, da, 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 da. no one could, and I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Uh, why is he crying is a very interesting question. In fact, one of the most interesting things about revelations in general is um, we never actually hear anything about the content of this document. In fact, the, the document seems to, in this kind of amazing way, be history itself. As in, as its seals are open, the facts of history emerge as facts. There is no moment where someone reads any of its contents. Um, what is it? What are its stakes? What makes the, spoiler, the lion who is a lamb, eligible to open it? Um, that actually is an amazing lacuna in the text. Uh, Clarence Larkin, who is, as you know, my favorite person to look at and be horrified by, uh, is all over this, actually, and has a really fascinating and, in his usual way, obsessively crazy reading on this, um, which is that this is uh, the form of a legal deed, um, and he goes back into like the book of Ruth and Jeremiah and Leviticus and points at all these moments where um, it is possible to disinherit yourself and a kinsman is allowed to uh, reclaim the property of a dispossessed relative on their behalf. You probably see where he's going with this, that Christ, by becoming human, can claim to be our kinsman and therefore take back the property that was disinherited uh, uh, before us by Satan, right? And that what we see as the seven seals are opening is Satan challenging his claim to our property. Um, He's crying and it's like, <laughs> is it just because he wants to see what happens next? Or does he somehow sense what the stakes are of this document? And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. There's that word again, the same word that's being translated as victor throughout this, uh, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The Lion of the Tribe of Judah. Um, the image of Judah as a lion goes all the way back to Jacob's blessing of his children, where he says that Judah is like a lion and shall never uh, be without his scepter. Um, Root of David is an interesting phrase. Uh, it means very obviously that Jesus, this is Jesus, spoilers, uh, is descended from the line of David, and you can see that belabored in both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. Um, 
I saw a really amazing reading this week uh, that says, oh, he's the root of David, which means that he comes before David. He is the thing from which David is sprung. That's a little too clever by half, but it is a cute uh, way that this word doubles back on itself. And then one of the, I mean, truly one of the most sublime images in all of literature, I think, um, we've been prepped and it's kind of hard to recoup how strange this is because we're so, many of us, I think, are so inured to the strangeness of this. We've been prepped very carefully to expect a lion, right? To expect the conquering lion. Um, We expect Aslan, right? This was Tolkien's great critique of the Chronicles of Narnia is that it, uh, celebrates the lion, and that is very clearly not what John does. He makes us anticipate the lion. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb, standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That is crazy. It's deeply weird for a start, right? Seven horns and seven eyes is perhaps the most maximally upsetting number of eyes. It's somehow more upsetting to me than eight. Like a spider's weird, but at least it has some kind of symmetry. Seven is unbelievably upsetting. And seven horns, similarly, impossible to make in any way symmetrical, right? Um... And it's dead. It's been slaughtered, but it's alive. It's this horrible, asymmetrical zombie lamb where we have been, like, fully, like, dissected, right? It has been not just killed, but slaughtered. Um, But it's alive and animate and intelligent and sentient. Uh, Fully crazy. Uh, Now, what's interesting about this? First of all, the inversion of lion to lamb is cool. You expected the conquering hero, and you got the lamb who dies. Um, Second, it's Johannine, right? The image of Jesus as a lamb is almost exclusively uh, in the Johannine texts thus far. Um, There's a lot of very compelling reasons to think John of Patmos is not John the Beloved. We've talked about them. Among them, the fact that there are 24 elders here. If one of them is John the Beloved, then the prophet cannot be John the Beloved. Um, But this use of the lamb imagery that so dominated uh, the Gospel of John and the letters of John and really only appears in one casual phrase in like the letter of Peter... um, puts this in conversation with those texts in really interesting ways. Um, Now, it's worth noting that uh, lamb imagery is not unique in apocalyptic literature to this apocalypse. Uh, One Enoch notably describes the Maccabees as uh, horned lambs. Um, So it's it's not unique, but it is really weird. And as I mentioned, It's hard for me right now in 2023 not to think of the game The Cult of the Lamb, which borrows all this imagery, this kind of horned lamb as agent of apocalypse to some unknowable entity above and beyond him. You'll note here just how high the Christology is. Uh, The lamb appears inside the inner circle of the throne, within the wheel of the four living beasts, right? Um... 
from whence he comes is a thing that a lot of commenters make a lot of juice out of, actually. Like, he may actually emerge from out of the throne itself, and he will be basically coterminous with the throne throughout this action. You'll notice just further down in this week's reading, when they pray, they pray to him and the throne, as though they are somehow one. That's incredibly high Christology, especially given what we've already triangulated about just how Jewish this writer is. Um, and he takes the scroll. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. You'll notice not a genuflection, not a bow, no action of reverence. He is entitled to this scroll. It is his scroll to receive. Um, and he receives it as an equal of the one who sends it, right? He is the person who is allowed to break the seals. I feel like I don't have to rehearse like what breaking seals means, right? Like if a king stamps something, uh, only the person who is it meant for is allowed to open the seal. There is kind of like a, a last will and testament quality here. I also similarly feel like, do I have to explain the sevens, right? Like completeness, right? Seven seals, seven horns for his maximum power levels, right? Horns are always symbols of power. Um, that's how they work in Daniel. Seven eyes for his wisdom and insight, right? And you'll notice again that weird seven churches thing, seven spirits thing is happening here. I really don't think he thinks of the seven churches he's writing to as the sum total of Christianity, but he certainly seems to think of this spirit as having seven dimensions to it. And as I said before in previous episodes, the Catholic Church has really run with this ball. Um... He went, took the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Uh, it is interesting and hilarious to me, frankly, that the idea that angels hold harps comes from this. Like, this crazy sublime image has become the truly the most kitschiest dimension of depictions of angels, right? Um, the idea that uh, angels play harps is uh, because you use harps to sing the psalms, right? The harp is the symbol of the Davidic psalms. Um, it is part of the worship ceremony. Similarly, the idea of incense in bowls um, is uh, a major aspect that we see described really throughout um, the texts that tell us about temple practice, like Deuteronomy and um, Leviticus, etc. Not hard to find. Um, I do think it's worth noting <laughs> that this passage this week is cited very frequently by Catholic thinkers as the argument for Catholic ritual taking the shape it does. Um, that Protestant worship as being stripped down, as being music-free, incense-free, robe-free, um, is to the Catholic, popular Catholic imagination, insulting because it we are mimicking the action of heaven. That just as in God's throne room they wear robes and play music and hold up incense and have really pretty crowns, <laughs> So, too, should the earthly action um, mimic that heavenly action, right? As above, so below, what you bind on earth, bind in heaven, etc., etc. Um, 
In fact, I don't think anyone in the in the listening range who is Catholic by birth or practice probably recognizes that a lot of these phrases um, that are being used in Revelations are mimicked in the Catholic Mass, right? Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might. Like, I actually find it kind of interesting and slippery the way my brain fills in the blanks as we're working here because I'm so used to reciting these things in the liturgy. Um, and indeed, we are about to get a version of that right now as they sing a new song, right? Obviously, something new is beginning here, and so a new song is appropriate. Um, they sing a new song, You Are Worthy, which is the thing, again, that was said to the emperor. There's something itself iconoclastic about the way the prophet has them saying, You Are Worthy here. Um, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God. Saints, and this is so interesting to me, and massively underplayed, I think. Saints from every uh, tribe and language and people and nation. What does that mean? Um, I saw translations and uh, uh, explanations for this that range, and as you can imagine, those ranges basically match pretty much exactly to a, how open or not every translator believes uh, Christianity should be. Um, what does the author, what does John of Patmos mean by this? Is he imagining converts to Christianity who are appropriately Judaized? Um, or is he actually saying what we kind of saw in the Yonin text, which is like, Jesus has flocks we know not of, and they will come from nations and tribes and languages that don't look like um, the cultural background which these gospels is produced in. Um, it would be nice to imagine he is being radically inclusive. <laughs> Given what we've seen and what we will see, probably worth sticking a big old asterisk on that one, because I do think, as we will see, uh, he thinks you got to be pretty Jewish before you can be Christian. Um, but we'll see. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Um, it will maybe be delightful to some of you to see that an awful lot of ink has been spilt since the Protestant Reformation about this idea of the priesthood of all believers. It sounds like what the elders are here singing is that everyone is a priest. And in fact, the Catechism of the Catholic Church goes a long way out of its way to explain that what this text seems to be saying is not actually what the text is saying, <laughs> which is that some people are special super-duper priests and all of us are kind of priests, but you still need to have regular type priests who have more authority than you do. Then I looked... And I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. A myriad is the Greek for 10,000. 10, it's really the highest number they had. Um, the idea of so many angels, that they're innumerable. Again, like, truly this is one of the most beautifully sublime passages in all of literature, I think. And I, I maybe I'm biased. <laughs> and I mean that in the truest sense of sublime, in that it is a little bit spooky and deeply upsetting, even as it is sort of shockingly beautiful. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth 
wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. I love that um, logjam of things he is worthy to receive, right? There's something wonderfully, uh, a barrage about it, really. The technical term for this effect, by the way, is polysyndeton. When you repeat a conjunction like an and or a but over and over and over again. Um, has a bunch of effects when you do this. One of them is like each of the items of the list gets a chance to really pop. Um, you see Shakespeare do that a lot. Uh, or it kind of adds rhythm. Another reason Shakespeare actually loves to do it is it's a great way to get an iambic pentameter off, right? Uh, we actually did see Milton using polysyndeton a few times in Paradise Lost. Actually, you see a lot... I'm just... I'm going to really go down a Paradise Lost <laughs> rabbit hole here. You see a lot of polysyndeton in um, the chaos sections of uh, Paradise Lost because that is the effect of chaos for Milton, right? It kind of just, like, is a jumble of concepts existing in space together. So, like, when chaos is talking to Satan, he says, Go and speed. Havoc and spoil and ruin are my gain, right? Like that's the kind of texture of the space of chaos is sort of like uh, unorganized anding of space uh, is the way it gets used. I'm just looking at uh, book two of Paradise Lost. Gorgons and Hydras and Chimeras Dire is maybe one of the best examples of polysyndeton. And then just a little further down, I'm literally just... <laughs> <laughs> uh, chaos with his dark pavilion spread wide on the wasteful deep. With him enthroned sat sable-vested knight, eldest of things, the consort of his reign. And by them stood Orcus and Aedes, and the dreaded name of, uh, the D-word, rumor next and chance and tumult and confusion, all embroiled and discord with a thousand varied mouths." The same uh, chapter has, uh, same book, book two, as he's moving through chaos, <laughs> Satan pursues his way and swims or sinks or wades or creeps or flies. See how he uses it to do like that um, iambic pentameter? Like it's literally just boop, 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 boop. Boop, boop. Like, it's really cool. Uh, and the effect here is throughout, actually, in Revelations. Um, and it, it is true that Greek in general just uses a lot more ands. Um, but, like, look at what it's doing here. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then just hold that thought. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea, and in the sea, and all that is in them, singing, again, uh, to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Last week, um, or two weeks ago now, uh, we uh, talked about how horrible it must feel to be constantly refraining the same refrains over and over and over again. Like, there was something horrifically sublime about the idea that these angels are trapped in this time loop, constantly re-performing the same recitation. The author doesn't shy away from that, and in fact, leans in. He wants you to feel that kind of horrible 
eternal rhythm, right? There is a way that the text is performing the sense of sublime absorption, right? That's the effect of this. We are, as our listeners, interpolated into the rhythm. We become part of the rhythm even though we don't know what the next word is going to be. We know how it's going to feel. We know how it's going to sound. It is shockingly effective as a poetic technique. Really incredible. And the fact that it somehow reaches us even through the gulf of translation here, to me, is really incredible. Okay, um, next week, uh, the four horsemen are here. <laughs> uh, I am going to turn over and tackle the extremely fascinating Patreon comments about this. We're going to try to make sense of a lot of things, up to and including, like, are there different kinds of incense being used here, etc. Um, uh, and then I'm going to give you the uh, reading of the four horsemen, which we're going to tackle... With as much gusto and consternation as they deserve. Uh, so if you want to hear that, uh, join us next week. Okay, thank you so much. Be brave enough to be kind. Bye-bye.